If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to John uh, 1, verse 6. John 1, verse 6. And and while you turn there, I'm just going to pray really briefly that God would guide our time together this morning. Heavenly Father, you are great and you are worthy to be praised. We need you. We need to hear from you. We need your spirit to be with us in every house, in every room, in every apartment that it, that is uh, that your, your people are gathered together today. We need to hear from you. We need your, your hand to guide the text. Help uh, me, Father God, to, to proclaim your truth with clarity and with um, consistency to your word. And I pray that you give me a heart and all of my friends' hearts uh, to hear and to receive and to embrace with gladness what you have to tell us this morning. I ask this trusting in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Amen. So John 1, uh, verses 6 through 8 say this, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So, only a few verses into the book of John, and there's, there's this sudden interruption in John's prologue where uh, he mentions John the Baptist. This is a different John than the author of the book, and John the Baptist is just suddenly mentioned as a man who was sent from God. <clears throat> and the reason we have this interruption, the reason this comes so early in the book, is the significance of John the Baptist in his ministry. John the Baptist came to bear witness to the light. Um, to announce the, the coming Savior who was called the Christ, the Messiah. John, as verse 8 says here, isn't the light, but he comes to bear witness to the light. And verse 14, just a ways down the page, would tell us that this light is the glory of God the Father seen in and through his Son, Christ Jesus. That's what this light is. And so almost two months ago, if you can remember, I'm having a hard time remembering two months ago, but if you can recall, we began this series, He Manifested His Glory, by looking at a very brief glimpse of this same glory in the testimony of John the Baptist. And I'm going to read that passage just to bring this to our memory before we continue. Uh, This begins in John 1.19, so follow me here. John 1.19 says, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Okay, so when John uh, first appears, he's drawing crowds, large numbers of people. In Mark 1, it says all of Judea and Jerusalem were going after him. And this incites the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem to find out who exactly this man is. Um, And here, when they interrogate him, he denies being the Christ, the Messiah. He denies being Elijah, and he denies being the prophet. Um, And we looked at those three extensively two months ago, but I'll just briefly cover them right now. These are three figures 
that are linked to God's redemptive purposes, his, the messianic hopes of the people of Israel. And John in this scene denies all of them. He says, I'm, I'm none of these. But instead he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, which is a reference to Isaiah 40, where the prophet Isaiah foresaw a man um, who would come before the, the Messiah, before the Christ, to prepare the way of the Lord, and to do that by calling the people of, of Israel to repentance. That's what John's ministry was. And we saw this, if you remember a few weeks back, in the Benedictus. Remember Zechariah, John's dad, uh, prophesied over his son that his son was going to give the people of Israel the knowledge of salvation, which would uh, bring them the forgiveness of sins. And before Zechariah prophesied this, nine months before this, um, an angel visited him and told him this exact same thing. Uh, when the angel foretold of John the Baptist's birth to Zechariah, he said this in Luke 1, John's going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is John's ministry. This is what John is, is going to do. John is going to prepare a people and he's going to do it, it says, in the spirit and the power of Elijah, which is huge. This echoes a prophecy we looked at it in detail a few months ago from the end of Malachi, the very last few verses of the Old Testament. We won't go there again today, but it also creates a question for us. Why is it that John denies being Elijah? What's going on here? This is something that even Jesus would tell us that John really is. John is Elijah. In Matthew eleven thirteen, 13, Jesus says, for all of the the prophets and the law prophesied until John, John the Baptist. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So even Jesus believed that John was Elijah. So why does John deny this in this moment? <clears throat> well, there are reasons for this. Uh, two of them are clear in the text. The first is that unlike what Jesus said in Matthew 11 just now, those who are willing to accept it, this delegation is not willing to accept John as Elijah at all. They want nothing to do with John as Elijah. These men are questioning John, and they will never accept him as Elijah because they're here to interrogate him. They want information from him. They're not coming to him to confess their sins. They're not coming to him to repent and to be baptized. They are coming here because they want to know who he is. They have an ulterior motive. So, just like Jesus said, they're not here to accept that he is Elijah. That's reason number one. Reason number two is in what follows. Look at verse 24 in John 1. John 1, 24 says, Now they, that is the, the delegation, had been sent from the Pharisees. <clears throat> and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So in, in, this, in these verses, we see the source of this delegation. 
uh, unsurprisingly, the Pharisees, who, uh, if you recall last week during Easter Sunday, these are likely many of the same elders and scribes who, uh, who oversaw the conviction of Jesus, the condemnation of Jesus that led to his death. Um, they're the ones who likely sent this delegation. And so <clears throat> when John denies being all three of these um, figures that have been foretold by the Old Testament, this delegation continues to interrogate and press him for information. And John here pivots hard and shifts the attention away from himself to the Messiah. If he had affirmed being Elijah in this moment, they'd still be preoccupied with him. They'd still have questions for him. But John isn't here to talk about himself at all. And so when he denies being any of those three figures, they ask him, then why are you baptizing? What, what, what right do you have to baptize? And John uses that question as a launch pad to point to Christ, to point to the Messiah. And so he answers like this. He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me. He's talking about Christ the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So let's, <clears throat> let's put ourselves there. Let's get there with John in this delegation. They ask him, what makes you worthy of baptizing? And his response is, why are you asking about me? I'm not the important one here. This whole thing that you see here isn't about me. It's about him. It's about Christ you should be asking about the one who comes after me, the one you do not know. That's who they should be focused on because he is to John so worthy, so glorious, so awesome that he says, I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals, which, I mean, this is a staggering statement for anyone to make about another person. But for John the Baptist to make it is even more staggering because this man is drawing massive crowds. But this is his testimony. His testimony uh, is that I am not worthy next to Christ. And this statement in some variation or another shows up in every single gospel. Let me read to you Luke 3. Luke 3 says it this way. As the people were in expectation... And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So this is his response to expectant crowds who are looking for the Christ, and this is his response to a delegation of people sent from Jerusalem with ulterior motivations. And so we can see John responds like this all over the map. This is a big deal to John. The worth of Christ is of critical importance to John's testimony, to John's ministry, especially when others are becoming preoccupied with who he is and, and his purpose. God, John knew this, God did not send John into the world to be the light. That's what verse uh, 7 tells us. He sent John into the world to bear witness to the light. And John knew this deep in his soul, which is why he responds the way he does. It's why he's so put off by the idea 
of taking and embracing the honor of being Elijah in the, in, in the history of Israel. He doesn't, want, he doesn't want to take any glory away from Christ. So what is John saying in the, the past verses 27, in John 1, 27? What does he mean when he says, among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie? What is he saying here? And I think we find in this statement three distinct parts. There's three different elements here that are distinct. And, and here they are. I'm going to go through them, then, then, we'll, then we'll dig deep into each one. The first is this. It's this idea that there is someone who is standing among the people, who's with them, who they do not know. They can't recognize him. And they can't see this person for who he really is. So that's Element number one, there's someone standing among us that we can't understand who he is. Number two is this, this man is going to come after John the Baptist in terms of his ministry. He will not remain hidden. He, he, he will not stay in the shadows. He will be revealed. So this man's going to come into the world and he's going to come with the purpose of being known. That's number two. The third part is the most obvious. It's the one that John is talking about. The one that they don't know, the one who's going to come after John the Baptist, is worthy of every ounce of affection and adoration they could supply him. He is worthy. And those are the three different individual parts of this statement. I want to look at each one because if John the Baptist embraced this statement so often that the gospel authors surfaces, all four of them surface it in their gospel, then there must be something that John knows about Christ and about his role in the world that we, the church, people who claim to follow Christ, need to understand and embrace. This is something critical pertaining to the worth of Christ Jesus. So let's look at each of these, starting with number one. Why is it that they didn't recognize Christ in this scene as it's playing out? Well, practically speaking, John hasn't revealed him yet, at least in the course of the narrative. He hasn't pointed and said, that's the Christ yet. He will do that in the coming weeks. But the tragedy about what John says here is that what John says is going to be true in the coming weeks, even when he does say that Jesus is the Christ. Because even after John reveals who Christ is, they refuse to believe. They don't want anything to do with him. Their ignorance isn't a lack of information. It isn't a lack of, of data. They simply re- reject Jesus as the Christ. They want nothing to do with him, which is why John 1, 9 says, after the passage we read at the very beginning, the true light, that's Jesus, which gives light to everyone, the very light that John is bearing witness to, that light was coming into the world. Indeed, he was in the world And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So the main problem for them isn't a lack of evidence. The reason they don't know him, as John says in verse 27, isn't because they lack evidence. Even after John points the the mantle of Savior toward Jesus, even after he does that, they don't receive him. They reject him. And Jesus tells us in John 5 why it is they reject him. John 5, 43, verse 44, tell us clearly. Jesus says, 
I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So this is the fundamental reason they don't believe in him. Because they are deep down in their hearts addicted to the glory that comes from man. They do not seek the glory that comes from God. They want nothing to do with the glory manifested in Jesus. Um, and that's what this light is. So, so John the Baptist is bearing witness to the light. He's bearing witness to the glory of Christ, and they don't receive it. And let me just be honest with you. That hasn't changed in 2,000 years. <clears throat> the further we get away from it, this is still 100% true. The reason we have people in our lives who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ with all the evidence that we supply in our own hearts, in our own words, in our own actions, isn't mainly because they lack evidence. It isn't mainly because of that. The reason why is they are blind to his glory. Because they are preoccupied with 10,000 other glories that in their hearts make Jesus look like a colossal waste of time. They make him look boring, they make him look uninteresting, and the ultimate tragedy about each of those other glories that are less than Christ is that they are nothing compared to him. They are nothing. Career success is nothing compared to the glory of Christ. Football or any other sport that you can imagine that we entertain ourselves with is nothing compared to the glory of Jesus Christ. Netflix, video games, Disney+, Plus, whatever you want to throw on that list, they are all, all of them combined, their entire glory combined is nothing compared to Jesus Christ. And yet these glories are what cloud eyes to see the worth of Jesus. That's why they don't believe. And this was true at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and this will be true as long as he tarries. It's true right now with the people that we love in our lives that don't believe or trust in him. The question isn't ultimately, even though giving arguments for Christ is good, the question isn't ultimately, what kind of words can I say that would cause them to believe in Jesus? The question is what Jesus asks, which is, how can you believe? How can you believe when you are completely addicted to lesser glories. Which brings us to number two, the second aspect of verse 27, which is that Christ was going to come after John the Baptist, one who comes after me. The Messiah, the Savior of the world, was going to physically enter human history. That's what John's talking about here, which means that the long-awaited hopes of the people of Israel were finally going to be answered. Their dreams, what they had been waiting for centuries for, was going to happen in the person of Jesus Christ. But he wasn't going to come like they thought he was. He wasn't going to be a conquering king. He was going to be a king who was conquered. Even though in that conquering, he would conquer. They wouldn't see it. And they wouldn't recognize him as the Christ. And in fact, even John the Baptist, at the very end um, of his life, he started to question 
whether or not Jesus was the Christ. At some point in his ministry, John the Baptist is arrested. You may remember this scene. And he is, he is imprisoned by Herod the Tetrarch. And he's on the verge of being executed is what's going to happen. And um, in the solitude of imprisonment, John the Baptist himself, the very one we're looking at, begins to wrestle with doubt. What if he was wrong about Jesus? What if Jesus wasn't the one to come? And so there's this astonishingly honest and raw scene with the first witness of Jesus Christ where he's wrestling with these doubts. Look at this in Matthew 11, verses 2 through 6. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed, he says, is the one who is not offended by me. This is a shocking scene, honest and raw. And, and Jesus or John is asking Jesus, I mean, it's a heartfelt plea. You can feel the tension in his heart. Are you the Christ? Are you the one? And Jesus responds, absolutely. And then he begins to cite all of the different ways he's proven that he's the Christ by doing all of these signs. In other words, Jesus is saying, uh, I'm the one. I mean, the blind they can see, the lame can walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are being raised. I'm the one. The gospel's being preached. And then studyingly, he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended. In other words, Jesus is saying, John, you were right about me. You were right. I am the one. I am the one. And I am of such a kind of worth and value that when people harm you because of me, it's actually a blessing. That there is a kind of glory that Jesus possesses that is so far above everything else in this world, everything else in this world, that to be hurt or to be insulted or to be killed for the sake of his name is actually a blessing. So, the coming Christ after the coming of Christ after John the Baptist is the infiltration into the world of a kind of glory that if you were to embrace it, no matter what your circumstances might be, no matter what you might be going through, if you embrace it, is to be blessed. You would be blessed in embracing it. And this is what Jesus is telling John. But he's only reminding him because John already knows this. Remember, he said, Among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John knew this. He knows this. Which brings us to the third point. In light of Jesus' answer to John, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. How are we to understand the claim that John makes in verse 27 of John 1. This claim that I just read um, about the worth and beauty of Christ, he can't even untie his sandal. 
Like, what does it mean for John? And, and, and really, what does it mean for you and I, for us, um, for Jesus to be this worthy, for him to be this glorious, for the, him to be this awesome? This isn't an intellectual or a theoretical question. This is a practical question for our lives today. Because for John the Baptist, this was the foundation of his ministry. This was the undergirding reality of everything he testified to the people, that Jesus Christ possesses unparalleled worth, unparalleled value, and that Jesus is objectively deserving of every ounce of love, of affection, of allegiance, of adoration that we can muster. That's what John the Baptist is saying here about the worth of Christ. And this is the point of verse 27. When John holds out the worth of Jesus, and when the gospel authors go to the trouble of recording it all of these different times, we come face to face with the reality of Jesus Christ. And what this is, is is a call to us not to be blind to the glory of Christ and to allow other glories to take their place in our lives, in his place in our lives, but rather to embrace Christ as our single, our singular greatest treasure. That's what this is calling us to do. And it's not to give him lip service, it's not to just say with our mouths, but for our lives to show it, for it to be a real experience. That's the whole point of Jesus' response to John in prison. It's one thing to claim that Christ is worthy with your mouth. It is an in, another thing entirely to hold on to him when everything in your life is crashing around you. When everything's falling apart, or when your life is about to end, like John's is here, which is exactly what John is is going to be showing here when he dies, that Jesus is enough, that the worth of Jesus Christ is more precious, more valuable than anything John has in the world, including his very life. And so when Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me, This blessing isn't something extra we get in addition to Jesus. It's not some special prize above Jesus that we're really longing to get once we get through this life. The blessing is Jesus. There isn't anything better than, you can't exceed the the blessing of knowing and enjoying Christ, which is why scripture uses such unblushing language about Jesus and about God. And our, our, our desire to, our, the, the desire we should have to pursue him. Um, there isn't anything, there isn't anything in the world that can p- compare to Jesus. There isn't anything. And the reason Christ came into the world and died for our sins on the cross is so that he, perfectly embodying the worth and glory of God could be our treasure for all eternity. That's why he died. That's why he died. Everything else that happened on the cross serves that purpose so that he would be our blessing, so that no matter what we're going through in life, he would be the controlling reality, that our joy in him would would rule over all other problems, all other issues or circumstances. So in the next few moments during this song that we're going to sing, if your faith is in Christ, if, if you really desire to enjoy Christ above everything else in the world and you want to receive him in that way, I invite you to partake in communion, to receive the elements in your own home. And I want, as you do that, please recognize 
that the cross, which is represented in the elements, was God in Christ pursuing us across an infinite chasm of our own unworthiness. We don't deserve it one bit, but he did it so that we would be blessed. And the blessing is precisely what Jesus told John the Baptist. It is to know Christ. It is to know him in all of his beauty, in all of his worth and glory, and know that I belong to him and he belongs to me. There isn't anything in the universe that will give you greater joy or longer lasting joy than the experience of knowing Christ Jesus, knowing the one who not only made you, but the one for whom you were made. And so I want to close by reading one final passage um, from, the book of, uh, from the book of Psalms and from Psalm 73. And it's directed by Asaph the psalmist toward God. It is a, a worshipful statement. And what I'd like to do is I would like to read it and join hearts with you in pursuing this as we go into prayer. Um, Psalm 73, verse 25. This is what I want my heart to be fixed on, and this is what I want your hearts to join me in. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Father God, I, I long for this reality for my own heart. I desire for you to be my portion. Jesus, I want you to be my portion. And I want my brothers and sisters who can hear me, my voice right now, I want them to join their hearts to this request. Be our portion. May we be able to say with John the Baptist that we're not worthy. We are not worthy to untie the sandals of his feet, but we love him and we know he loves us and he is our treasure. He is our joy. May, may, we, may we be joined with all of the Christians across the ages who have cast aside lesser glories, lesser good things in this life, and have treated them with the right respect they deserve, honoring Christ alone first. May we feel the, the, the gladness of knowing our Lord and Savior, a, a gladness that is unparalleled in its length and its height. Father God, I ask for that. Be our treasure, Jesus. Be our, our joy, Father. And I pray that, that as we navigate the rest of this, this, this pandemic that we're currently in, that you would work in our hearts to continue to draw us deeper into our relationship with you, deeper into intimacy with you, and that you would fix our eyes on you as our treasure, as our joy, as our gladness, that you would be everything for us, Father. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.